Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Hello and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasia and joining me today is Toby Sinclair from End Beyond Asia. Toby will be looking forward to hosting the Brahmaputra River Cruise Small Group Journey in 2022 and telling us about how he discovered a fascination for India's rivers. He'll speak to us about the history of river travel in India and tell us about the landscapes that river cruises explore. Toby, thank you so much for coming back again to share some more interesting insights into India and the Indian subcontinent as a whole. Today, we're going to be chatting a little bit about India's rivers and waterways. Yes, of course. And thank you, Kasia, for asking me back. Mm, Fantastic. So Ant Beyond has just launched the first of its river cruises in India on the Brahmaputra River with a launch date of 2022. And you're set to be the expedition leader on this cruise. Indian river cruises are something that's relatively little known and something that not many people know all that much about. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of river travel in India and how it all began? Rivers across the world, across our planet, are incredibly important as a means of communication for generations. Primitive man must have used rivers. They must have been daunted by having to cross a river or witnessing a river in flood, but they managed to fish, they managed to navigate, and they used the river valleys to get from A to B. And I guess mountains would have been a greater barrier to many people than a small river or stream. And in South Asia, rivers are incredibly important within our sort of human history. Although man came into South Asia, Homo sapiens came out of Africa 100,000 years ago, and there's evidence of them being in India at least 74,000 years ago. The oldest civilizations in India are river valleys. Mm. The Harappan civilization, which was first discovered in the Indus, which is today in Pakistan, is between four to five and a half thousand years ago. Cotton was being grown in the Indus Valley 5,000 years ago. Rice was being grown in the Ganges Valley six to 7,000 years ago, mm-hmm. one of the earliest places on our earth. So rivers are vital to man's development and the spread of cultures and the spread of people across the planet. And then going forward, in terms of history, rivers were used for Mughals, who were the last of the great Muslim rulers of northern India, had fleets of ships on rivers such as the Ganges, linking cities like Delhi and Agra, the great Mughal centers, with Bengal to the east. And they had river Mm -hmm. trade on the Indus River, as I said, just today in Pakistan, but geographically it's all part of the South Asian subcontinent. I read recently a figure of up to 10,000 boats linked the mouths of the Indus with Punjab and a couple of places Mm -hmm. on the river where goods were transferred to camels and then taken to Agra. Ajmer and Delhi. So rivers have been important for generations, different rules. I mean, the East India Company, which was based in Calcutta, used the Ganges as its main artery, especially for coming downstream, but even for going upstream as far as Banares and then on to Agra and Delhi. So the British commercial operations in Calcutta in the 1800s and early 1900s started using the rivers to bring tea and coal out of northeastern India down the Brahmaputra and other goods like indigo and opium 
down the Ganges to the docks in Calcutta, which were then shipped worldwide. I mean, the tea, which was brought from China, was transshipped in Calcutta and sent to Boston for the tea party in the 1770s. So river trade and sea trade are integral to each other. They can't work without the other. This great tradition, and there's some lovely writing in the 1800s of river travel in India. So it's not a new idea. What we're trying to do is reuse the rivers, go back to the rivers, and show parts of India in ways that we've overlooked. Mm. And just in terms of the kind of river travel, I mean, I would imagine that it's very, very different to road travel or even rail travel in India. You get that whole sense of peace and serenity, or, or is it not like that? Serenity is a difficult thing to achieve in many parts of India, <laughs> unless you're actually sitting on a mountaintop. As a generalization, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why I love rivers is, apart from the fact that it's, there's so much history along the banks, is that you use the river as mm -hmm. your base, whether you're going upstream or downstream. And mm -hmm. it takes you to places that normal travel in India doesn't reach. Because mm -hmm. although there are some big cities on rivers in India, because of the dynamic nature of a river and the size of them, and the fact that the monsoons yes. can completely change the landscape for three months of the year where they flood, and rivers can move. Mm -hmm. And if you look at a map of one of the Ganges' major tributaries from the north flowing from eastern Nepal called the Kosi, over 150 years that river has moved mm -hmm. year after year about 170 kilometers from east to west. Wow. So if you look at a map of these villages, and you'll see... I've been lucky enough to witness this. You go to a village in North Bihar, which is in sort of the eastern end of the Ganges on the, between Nepal and the river, and the river is flowing on the eastern side of the village. And then you go back a year later, and the river's on the western side of the wow. village. The village is still there on a little bit of high ground. And the previous monsoon, when everything flooded and the village got isolated, a new channel had been mm -hmm. cut on the left side, on the west side, and when the waters receded, that became the main channel. The main channel moved from the east to the west of the village. And you do that after year after year. This river in 150 years has moved 170 kilometers. And you look at a map based on mm -hmm. data of the Ganges Delta or the Indus Delta. They're very different today than what they would have been a thousand mm -hmm. years ago. And that in geological time is incredibly fast. I mean, where Calcutta sits today, 70 yes. kilometers from the sea, would have been underwater, and not because of climate change or glacial melt, would have been underwater 1,500 years ago because the silt deposits brought down by these great rivers from the Himalaya, and the silt is up to two kilometers thick, just hadn't filled up. They hadn't mm -hmm. filled the gaps in those days. I find that side of rivers fascinating. But to go back to your question mm. as to what is it that makes river travel so interesting, to completely paraphrase it and is. muck up an old advertisement that used to be for a beer in England, which was it reached parts that other bears don't reach. You could say that rivers <laughs> reach parts of India that other forms of transport don't reach and haven't reached for some cases hundreds of years. Mm. It really is remarkable, and it's quite amazing to think that you might travel this route, and somebody traveling the same river mere years after you might experience and see something totally different 
I don't think there's many places in the world where that happens. Well, even in my lifetime, things I saw on a river 10, 12 years ago, I won't see today. There's a temple on the Ganges, which is on a little island, which has been an island Mm. for, as far as I know, a few hundred years, because I've seen sketches of it from the 1800s. And when I first went there 25 years ago, it was an island. Today, you can walk across to it. It's just the river has one major monsoon deposit only mass of mud one year on the southern side of the river and that created a mm. lake but that can just as easily get washed away wow. in a future monsoon yeah. that, that's a remarkable change in a very very short space of time mm. toby you've spoken a little bit about about the fascination of rivers for you in general what is it that first drew your attention to india's rivers in particular i think that Two very sort of different stories. I was always interested in the Himalaya and the Tibetan-speaking areas of Asia. And that's what one of the reasons that mm-hmm. sort of drew me out. Going to Kathmandu was an opportunity to try and learn Tibetan and learn more about Tibet, which is an area that always fascinated me and I continue to read about, although I never learned the language. So these rivers, there are not very many rivers that actually flow through the Himalaya. Mm-hmm. In one sense, the Himalaya is bounded by the Indus to the west, and the Sangpo, which becomes the Brahmaputra, to the east. And these two rivers have their sources on the Tibetan plateau very close to each other, almost due north to Delhi. But they flow parallel with the Himalaya on the north side, and then they break through. And those rivers Mm -hmm. probably predate the coming together of India as an island and the Asian landmass and the great thrust, you know, what we call plate tectonics, which has created the Mm -hmm. Himalayan range being thrust up. As the mountains got thrust up from about 50 million years ago, and the Sea of Tissus, which was the water between India and Asia, was washed away, or sort of pushed away, a few rivers did cut their way through the growing mountains. But there are very few of them, less than 10, along the whole length of the Mm -hmm. Himalaya. So almost all the rivers that flow out of Nepal and the Himalaya have their sources within the mountains, from glaciers or springs or whatever, and monsoon rain just falls on the mountains and flushes everything out. So there's a river that flows through from the Tibetan Plateau in eastern Bhutan. There's two or three rivers in Nepal. There's the Sutlej in in western India. But they're not many. And I'm always interested in sort of 19th century stories of explorers. And and some of the great stories evolved at Sangpo, Mm -hmm. which was this big river flowing in Tibet, which flows due east and then wraps around a mountain in yes. the eastern Himalaya, east of Bhutan in India, and then does a it does a 180-degree turn. So flowing east, it then does a turn and then starts flowing southwest and then curves through the Himalaya and drops very rapidly into the plains of Assam. And Sangpo in Tibetan means big river or great river. And that river then becomes the Brahmaputra, which flows through Assam and flows mm-hmm. west through Assam and then finally makes its way to the sea in Bangladesh, where it meets mm-hmm. up with the Ganges and creates this fantastic delta of mangrove swamps and the world's largest mangrove forest. It's a fascinating area. But this mm-hmm. geological growth is when you're in Nepal, you can be walking in the Himalaya at 10,000, 12,000 feet, and you find... Anamite, you find uh, fossils of sea creatures, mm-hmm. 
at 12,000 feet. And mm -hmm. in fact, it was discovered by a Swiss climber in the mid-50s. Mm -hmm. There is almost at the summit of Mount Everest a flower, which is a fossilized flower that was, must have got pushed up over these 50,000 years of growth of the mountains. So this fossilized flower right at the summit of Mount Everest. Oh, wow. That's really extraordinary. That's a really unique geological feature. Now, Toby, I think for many people, the most well-known of, of India's rivers is the Ganges. And I know that as part of the work that you did on film and on documentaries, you did work on a feature about the Ganges River. Can you tell us a little bit about that and about the documentary in question? Yes, it was a lot of fun and a, quite a personal project in many ways. I was part of the team which made a series called Land of the Tiger in the 90s for BBC and PBS in the States. And when that was over, the producer sort of thought, well, what else can we do in India? And I suggested the Ganges, and we talked about it, and he put in a proposal, and nothing happened. About 10 years later, so this is about 2005, I was in the BBC offices in Bristol, and one of the top characters came up to me and said, mm -hmm. oh, by the way, Toby, good to see you're in the office. We're thinking of doing a film about the Ganges. So I said, well, that's interesting. We put in an application some years ago, and you rejected it, sort of pulling his leg slightly. And he said, well, come into my office, we'll talk. So I went in and we met. I sort of, on the back of an envelope, sketched out something which was very similar to what my colleague had put forward 10 years earlier. And he said, no, no, we want to do it this way. We're going to do themes. And anyway, cut a long story short, we ended up making more or less the film that I outlined on the back of an envelope, which was to look at the river geographically. It was a three-part series, three one-hour programs, made for the BBC in uh, the UK and sold across the world, but went out on one of the Discovery Channels in the United States and a few other places. So... We looked at the river in three sort of sections. So the first mm -hmm. one was the river in the mountains and uh, river flowing out of the glaciers. And we've tried to stick to the geographical main course of the Ganges throughout, but we did sort of go up a few tributaries and come down again. In the Himalayas, we started quite high above the glaciers at 12,000 feet, which then is a source of the Ganges is generally considered something called gaumuk, which is the cow's mouth. Mm -hmm. And that's the snout of the glacier from which this quite milky-looking water, because it's all yeah. ice and a lot of mica in, in it, it's very pure, starts trickling out and then flows down. And even in my lifetime, I have seen a change. That glacier has retreated about eight kilometers. In records and projections, that glacier has retreated a lot more than that in the last 200 years. So much of the water that flows into the Ganges mm -hmm. basin comes from snowmelt. And if we lose those glaciers, what are we going to do? Almost one-tenth of mankind, about 650 million people, live in the catchment area of the Ganges. Bear in mind, that's a large chunk of northern India and Bangladesh is included in that statistic and parts of Nepal. So with climate change, river flows are going to change, and that's going to change agriculture for a very large number of people. Mm -hmm. The film looked at the mountains, the forests, the animals, the birds within the 
it was predominantly natural history, but we also looked at the culture, so the people who live in these areas, the faiths. I mean, the source of the Ganges in the mountains is tied up with Hindu mythology and the very basis of Indian faith. The Ganges is a river that gave a people a religion. Hinduism without the Ganges wouldn't be Hinduism. It's vital to understanding India. The first program took us through the mountains, down Mm -hmm. through all the rough water, lovely white water rafting areas, and then the river leaves the Himalaya, a place called Rishikesh. And then there's a sort of bit of forest area, and I always sort of consider it enters the plains at another town called Haridwar, which is about 20 kilometers further downstream from Rishikesh. So we ended the first program there. The second program looked at the plains, the peoples over the many centuries, the agriculture, the continuing flooding, the laying down of mm-hmm. hundreds of meters, and in some cases, I said, two kilometers worth of alluvian silt, which is really just mud washed year after year mm-hmm. from the Himalaya. And that creates this wonderful richness in the great plains of the Ganges. So the Harappan civilization sites going back 4,000 years. There's, as I said earlier, very early records of rice cultivation in the Ganges, not connected with the Harappan civilization necessarily. You had early Hindu kingdoms. You had the influx of Islam after the 800s and then the, the Muslim sultanates and later the Mughal Empire controlling the whole area. And then coming from the coast, trade comes up the river, and the Europeans come up the river to exploit the hinterland. So mm-hmm. there's a distributary of the Ganges called the Hooghly, which flows through Calcutta. Mm-hmm. A thousand years ago, it, it was the main course of the river, but that has changed. And along that river, the Hooghly, where Calcutta is today, I use the term Europe on the Ganges. So you had Portuguese, Dutch, French, Danes, English, because mm-hmm. the Scots hadn't joined by then, Armenians. You even had the Antwerp Company, mm-hmm. which today be in Belgium. And there was a trading company that came from Trieste, which was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They all had warehouses along the Hooghly River. Now, the largest of those settlements is Calcutta, which was English, and that became the capital of the British Indian Empire and second city in the empire. But the Portuguese were there. They traded with permission from the Mughal emperor sitting in Delhi, 1,500 kilometers away. The Danes and the Dutch were there for years. The English brought out the Danes. The Dutch sort of were absorbed into everything. The French remained there till 1954. So there's this great moment of 18th, 19th century history along the river. And during the 1600s, when the English Civil War was going on, the Dutch were sourcing saltpeter, which mm-hmm. I think is potassium nitrate, which is a natural product from the dry banks in the summer months when the river shrinks. And this is deposited, and that was then shipped. I'm talking about the 1640s, shipped back to Europe, and that was the gunpowder that was used in the guns and the pistols and whatever, during the English Civil War. And India remained a major source of gunpowder, saltpeter, 
until 1861 during the American Civil War, when Mr. DuPont in Delaware in America synthesized those chemicals and they didn't need to source it from India. Mm-hmm. So the Ganges is linked into world history in ways that most people don't think or know. And it's just sort of my magpie-like brain picks up mm-hmm. all these little yes. side bits of information, amazing landscape. So to get back to the, your question about the film that we made about the Ganges, the third program looked at the Delta, which is really West Bengal, around Calcutta, this country of Bangladesh, which is mm-hmm. an amazing country which is threatened by climate change today. Uh, we talked about all those issues. We talked about the people that live within this very, very fertile part of the world and the mangrove forests, which are the largest mangroves mm-hmm. in the world, which protect the delta from cyclones, protect the inland hinterland from cyclones, but are also home to a few hundred tigers. And it's a great, so this wonderful wildlife in this watery landscape shared with man. Toby, while the Ganges is obviously India's best known river, and as you've already described, it's it's a very, very vibrant river with many landscapes and many different things that go on throughout the course of it. It really is just the sort of the tip of the iceberg, so to say, isn't it? What are some of the other rivers that modern Indian river journeys explore? What kind of landscapes do you go through and what can you expect to see and experience on one of these trips? In contemporary India today, we work with two or three operators and we run our own trips on the Brahmaputra. The Ganges has river cruises, anything between sort of three or four days to seven days, and it covers different sections of the river. So you can go from Calcutta down into the Shundabans, which is a sort of four-day trip. You can go from Calcutta north to join the main river, where the Hooghly River joins the Ganges. As I said, the Hooghly is a distributary, so it's when the, the river starts breaking up. And that's a seven-day trip, and that takes you through that wonderful stretch of river where all the European settlements were and trading houses. And then upstream from when you join the Ganges to a place called Patna, it's full of ancient Buddhist history, Muslim history, Hindu sites along the river, the sanctity of the river. And then again from Patna upstream to Varanasi, the great Indian city of Banaris. So those are river trips that can be done on the Ganges. And we work Mm -hmm. with colleagues to run trips there. But we run our own trip on the Brahmaputra, which is a less busy river, but in many ways a bigger, broader river. And we run a river trip as and beyond, which incorporates the great national park of Assam, one of the great parks of Asia called Kazaranga, and has seven days on the river as well. The Brahmaputra is, as I mentioned earlier, its source is in north of the Himalaya on the Tibetan plateau, and it flows the whole length of Tibet. It flows the whole length of the Himalaya on the north side, and then breaks through the eastern Himalaya and flows into Assam. So we're doing a river trip for 10 nights, 11 days. We do this itinerary in the sort of central section of the river as it gets quite broad in places, flows through and past these great wetlands and riverine grasslands, which is mm-hmm. parks like Kazaranga. But also along the river, there's a lot of history. There's temples that date back to the 8th, 9th century. There are rock carvings on islands, rocky islands and outcrops that are at least a 1,000 years old. There are 
the remains of the uh, home culture, which are the traditional rulers of Assam for about six centuries mm-hmm. uh, until they were pushed out by the influx of the East India Company in the early 1800s. And then you have things like tea, this vast area of tea growing, Assam tea. And these tea gardens come down to the riverbanks. Mm-hmm. So as we yes. cruise past gently, on occasions we will stop and we'll get off the boat and we'll walk through these tea estates and we'll walk up and meet people in the tea factories or the, the bungalows. And when we get to Kazaranga, we'll get off the boat and we'll get onto jeeps and we'll go into the park. And it's one of the greatest concentrations of rhinoceroses on the planet. It's also one of the world's great conservation successes from a few rhinos in 1912. Now about 3,000 rhinoceros in this area. And it continues to grow. They are the pride of Assam. They are the symbol of Assam. And there are now other wetlands along the river banks Mm -hmm. where more rhinos have repopulated. But not only rivers. We have India's only non-human ape. We have gibbon. We find that in the tall trees set back slightly from the river, we see these gibbons. They're called huluk gibbons. Mm -hmm. And they take their name from the sound that they make. And I'm not going to scare you by imitating it now. But the river gives life to Kazaranga. The river will flood every year and flood the park during the monsoon, and it will resuscitate the park. It will rejuvenate the park. It fills these small lakes mm-hmm. and ponds, which are known as beals, with water from the river as the river breaks the banks and floods the area. And with the water comes fish from the river and crustaceans from the river, and the whole thing is alive. And as the river recedes, the waters recede in early October they leave this amazing landscape where you have a grass that is up to 12 to 13 feet tall. Within that grass, you have what some people refer to as the sort of Norunguru of Asia because That's you have amazing. rhinoceros in large numbers. You have Asiatic wild buffalo. You have swamp deer, which are a big deer that is only found in this Kazaranga grasslands. A magnificent animal, also known as Barasinga, mm-hmm. because they have 12 tines to their antlers. And Mm -hmm. you have tigers. It's one of the highest concentrations of tigers in India, in the world. But they're not easy to see. I have to qualify that statement because, Mm -hmm. A, the grass is very tall. And, of course, you have elephants. But the tigers there, not only are they in quite high concentrations, but they're also physically large tigers because they predate on rhino calves or elephant calves Mm -hmm. or these deer or buffaloes. It's a really extraordinary natural area, and it's really not something that very many people consider when they they think about travel in India, is that safari element. No, Kazuranga is a gem Mm. of a place. It is incredibly rich and fertile. I mean, I've gone onto a watchtower on the edge of one of these big grassy wetland areas in Kazuranga and put up my spotting scope, and... On many occasions, I've seen more mm-hmm. than 50 rhinos from a single spot. That's Those of us who are aware of rhino issues and rhino conservation in other parts of the world, India's incredibly lucky and fortunate. Mm. Somehow it got it right. I mean, there are threats. There are threats from the water. There are threats from poachers. Yeah. And uh, the commercial demand mm-hmm. for rhinos are the same in Asia as they are in India. In fact, the market is really mm. Asia, uh, not in it's sort of China, Hong Kong wherever. And of course, Yemen used mm-hmm. to be for the rhino horns. But Kazaranga, it's worked. And there are two or three other places in Assam where the rhino is revered and protected by all levels of society. Mm. 
That's wonderful to hear. So the river journey itself, it's this combination of the culture and the many influences that have grown up around the river and the history, along with the natural sites and then the wildlife diversity of Kaziranga. Yes, and the wildlife is not restricted to the trip to Kaziranga. Every day on the river, we mm -hmm. see a lot of birds. On sandbanks, we'll see river turtles. And mm -hmm. if we're lucky, and we generally are, we'll see Gangetic river dolphins. And in this river, the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, a legacy of the original mm -hmm. marine animals when India met Asia and the Himalayas were created, as I mentioned earlier. So mm -hmm. these are quite primitive marine mammals. They're now a river, so they're freshwater. They've adapted to the freshwater. But the river's very silty. It's very murky because of all the silt that's brought down from the hills. The dolphins are now blind. But if you see a dolphin skull, you will actually see an eye socket. But they no longer use those eyes. Evolution has stopped making them. So mm -hmm. the eye socket is there, and the socket is covered with flesh on the skull of the dolphin. And they, interestingly, also have double system of sonar. They have two nodes that they have in their skull, which transmit and receive radar, in effect, sonar. And I believe that is a sign of the, of the evolution of mm -hmm. dolphin sonar. I'm using the word, sort of nautical word. Whereas more evolved dolphins and ones that are marine dolphins today in the oceans mm -hmm. have a single but much more effective form of sonar. But it obviously works for these creatures, these wonderful mammals, because they have survived for millions of years in the river and continue to find enough fish to live on. So it really is a fascinating glimpse into the sort of world that you can't see anywhere else. Yes, we don't do any diving. Quite literally, we can only see we see the dolphins when they come to the yes. surface, <laughs> and usually in the evenings. And it's a lovely sight to go out in a country boat if we're not on the main boat. We take a smaller boat out from which we tow mm. with us all through the on the journey. So we're lower in the water and we see dolphins. These mm -hmm. river dolphins don't leap. They sort of merge out of the water and they arc through the water. So you see their heads and their snouts and then the backs and the flukes and the tails. Yes. As they arc, you know, out of the water and back in again. And the sun mm -hmm. is going down and the sky is in the water golden. It's quite romantic. That sounds amazing. You mentioned that there's that there's a smaller boat that you tow that you can use for excursions. What would a typical day on, on a river cruise like that look like? One of the joys of cruises, it doesn't matter whether it's a boat or a river cruise or out in the ocean, is that you don't have to repack your bags every day as you move from one place to another. You can get on the boat, hang up your clothes, and you use the same facilities. It is your home for five, six, yes. ten, twelve days, or even longer in some areas. And we have people who link different mm. itineraries together. Quite often, we might mm. cruise for an hour or two in the morning from where we moored overnight in order to get mm. to a place. So during that time, everyone sort of gets up, has breakfast, does there's yoga on the, mm -hmm. on the top deck, if anyone would like it. People sit out there and read. People watch birds. Kazarunga alone has almost 500 birds. Along the river, you see a lot of terns and gulls mm -hmm. and birds of prey as well. And then you... Maybe you stop at a village and or a, somewhere where you're going to go and look at an ancient building. So you take the, sometimes the big boat is, a, is able to moor against the bank of the river. Other mm. times we have to go up a little creek or side stream. So we take what is known as the country boat, which is a 
motorized craft, which just takes 15 to 20 people. Everyone's issued with life jackets mm-hmm. and things. And we go ashore and then we walk. And very rarely are the walks from the mooring point more than a kilometer or two maximum. There are some places where we are met by vehicles on the shore, mm-hmm. and those vehicles will take us to whatever we're going to be seeing that day. So mm-hmm. it could be some interesting buildings which are 10 kilometers away. We never go more than an hour from the river. And then we're maybe out for anything between mm-hmm. 90 minutes and three hours. Then we come back to the boat, and the boat continues its journey. There's usually at least one excursion every day. But we occasionally have two excursions, so there may be one in the morning and one in the afternoon, but it all depends upon the geography of the river. And it slightly varies whether you're going upstream mm-hmm. or downstream, because going upstream obviously takes longer because you're against the current to do a similar distance and vice versa. So every day there's some activity and there's many evenings. Yes. I mean, when I'm on the boats, we uh, give a lecture on maybe the, the history mm-hmm. of the region or the history of Kazaranga mm-hmm. in the case of this trip as an introduction to Kazaranga, a small 20 to 30 minute talk in the evening before dinner. So there's quite a lot of interaction. The boats have good libraries on them. It has a bar, but a single dining room. And it's a great time to relax and just mm-hmm. let the world slide past. But most importantly, and I think this is what I get most out of these river trips, is watching the world go by and getting access to places, whether it's a ninth century rock carvings or a fourth century Buddhist temple or a, the ability just to sit and watch dolphins from the back of the boat as you're gliding downstream. These are magical places and magical moments. It sounds absolutely fantastic and definitely, definitely a very, very different experience of India. It is. I mean, river travel worldwide gets you to places that other forms of transport doesn't get you to. And in Asia, that is definitely the case. You have comfort. You don't have the strain of having to drive on mediocre roads. River travel is never bumpy. It's always flat and smooth. And you're well looked after and well cared for. And and you have a comfortable cabin to retreat to in the evening. They're comfortable. They're fairly luxurious. They're not big. But they're very nice and eminently practical. Well, I think it's definitely something for our guests to look forward to once they're able to travel again. Of course. We have the one trip scheduled for February 22. I'll be there waiting beside the boat, waiting to welcome our guests aboard. That sounds absolutely fantastic, Toby. Thank you so much for sharing this little glimpse into India's rivers with us. I think if I may ask you to do so, you shared a really beautiful quote about India and its rivers with me before. If I could ask you to maybe share that with us in closing, that would be really lovely. Happily. This is actually something written by a wonderful Bengali Indian novelist called Amitabh Ghosh, who wrote a very good book called Hungry Tide about the Shundabans, about this great mangrove swamp and forest where the Ganges and the Brahmaputras merge together. And he's written a recent book in verse based upon a story from the Shundabans. And it begins, Many great rivers rise in the Himalaya, the Ganga among them and the Brahmaputra. Flowing down from west and east, they meet in Bengal and branch into numberless streams, some vast, some small. Still they multiply, courses splitting as they flow, creating a tangled green archipelago 
Thousands of islands rise from the river's rich silts, crowned with forests of mangrove, rising on stilts. This is the Shundaban, where laden waters give birth to a vast jungle that joins ocean and earth. That's really, really beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing it, Toby. Well, it's hot off the press. The book was published a month ago. Well, maybe we can encourage some of our listeners to go out and get hold of that. Yeah, it's called Jungle Nama, Story of the Sundaban by Amitabh Ghosh. Toby, as always, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you. Thank you so much for giving up your time again. Hopefully you will get to meet some of our listeners on that Brahmaputra River cruise. That I look forward to. Happily to share parts of India that I love with anyone who wishes to come and join me. Thank you for listening to Leave Our World a Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about and beyond, please log on to our website at andbeyond.com.